Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. And my name's Brad. The story this week is set in the Jim Crow era of American history, a time of segregation and legal disenfranchisement of African Americans. And we'll be talking about Josie Wells, an African American woman who became a successful and influential doctor here in Tennessee during that time period. And we have a special guest this week. Yes, it's our coworker, Christy, who's also our staff genealogist. She's going to share with us the research that she's done on Josie. So we're going to begin our interview with Christy right now and tune in in two weeks for part two of this series. Thank you so much for listening. Were you expecting our recording studio to be as high tech as it is? No. I thought it was just going to be a little, you know, microphone set up in the attic. But well, is that is nice. literally exactly yeah. what it is. <laughs> yeah, for those of you guys who don't listen to us all the time, um, all of our recent episodes have been recorded in the attic of Carton. I thought you were recording so. in the cellar. Did we did I see the a cellar of you in the cellar. We did the cellar of Carter House once uh, when we did the episode on Todd. But um, but we've realized there's more consistent sound up here. And people go into the uh, the basement all the time. So you are our staff genealogist. You're also a tour guide like Sarah and I, but you are a genealogist. Why don't you tell us what is genealogy? Genealogy is the study of families. And I'm particularly interested in the human perspective of history, which is why I'm interested in families. I love to see how events like the Civil War and women's suffrage and even things as, you know, that we, you hear about just like, going west to strike gold. You know, I like to see how those events affected families and how families reacted to those. When you do that research, does it does it make those like how does it change your perspective on people in the past? Does it humanize them more? Yeah, and it it makes you understand history more. One of my grandfathers, for instance, he was a Confederate soldier, 32nd Georgia Infantry, and I didn't know I mean, I really literally knew next to nothing about him and I found his pension records and his pension records. He had been given furlough in September of 64 and they said, were you with your men or your regiment when they mustered out? And he said, no, he said he was home on furlough, sick. And they said, why didn't you return to your men? He said, Sherman and the entire U.S. or federal army, he said, were between me and my men. (laughs) There was no way to get back. And for me, you take that moment and you take Sherman marching towards the sea and you have this family member that you can put in that moment in history. It makes history come alive. Did you start this with your own family? Did you start this doing genealogy work for other people? I started it with my own family when my grandfather died. Now, I was a nerdy eight-year-old girl writing family trees for the Kennedy family and the royal family because I didn't really know my own family tree. So I would sit on the ground and make all these family trees of the Kennedys and the royal family, basically. But when my grandfather died, I was 27, and I had always been interested, always been interested. And I worked at the library. I helped other people um, do research and find things when they needed it, but I hadn't really done my own. And when my grandfather died, it was a way to grieve. And he didn't know anything about his family. So that's when I started looking into it. And I started traveling south to interview his um, cousins. I know more of his cousins than he ever knew. And for me, it was a way to heal, to find those pieces of him that none of us knew. And so, um, yeah. So you were able to kind of reconstruct who he was 
in a way that you may never have known because of that research. Yeah. And he was a young, he was only in his early sixties when he died. So he was young and he didn't know much about his own family because his mother had died when he was four years old. So he didn't know nothing about her side of the family. And then my family moved from Georgia. It was in the great migration in the late forties, early fifties. They moved North for work because there was no work where he was down in Georgia. Um, my great grandfather that is. And so, when you move like that and you're impoverished, this family was impoverished, they were sharecroppers, so they moved north and they lost contact. They didn't really, maybe went south only a couple more times his entire life, and when he was 16 years old and he moved north was the only time my grandfather ever saw his cousins. Now, they passed through the town they were in, so they stopped, and those were the cousins that I've actually interviewed and met, and for me, it gave me, I was able to rebuild my grandfather in a different light than just knowing him as a little girl, you know? So, yeah, that's, that's really cool. And at what point did you say, would you say that you became a professional genealogist? Last year when I got my certification. (laughs) (laughs) However, I've been doing it for, for, I mean, since I was 27, so almost 20 years. After I started on my own family tree, what I did was every single one of my friends, every single one of my friends, I started working on their genealogies, every branch of my family tree, and not just mine. I worked on my aunts, who is not blood related, you know, my uncles. I worked on every branch because the more the more variety you have in research, the more experience that you're able to gain. It's not just, you know... People coming from England and Ireland, which is basically what's in... I have so much Scotch-Irish and German. I don't have a lot of anything else. So mine was very, very um, sort of, I don't know, boring in that (laughs) aspect. It's very pre-revolutionary American is where my family fit into it. So I started going to the people I work with at the library. And I was like, let me do your family tree. And I tried to get African-Americans and new immigrants and Um, I completely did it on my own, that learning process. And I didn't learn how to do it the right way. So I never learned all of the proper way for citations and writing reports. So I didn't do that till last year, but there was never a need for it. Um, I was able to interview, like I taught genealogy classes at the local community center where I lived in Ohio. And I volunteered with the Library of Congress and I was able to interview World War II soldiers which all of those sort of, they, they go into that same concept of genealogy. It's the human experience. Because I wasn't asking about battles. I was asking about their mother. And I was asking, you know, how they felt as these things are going on around them. So I probably couldn't tell you a single battle any of those soldiers were in. Um, but I can tell you how they felt and how they reacted to everything that was the chaos that was erupting around them during World War II. Those are the things that I remember. So when I research, those are the things I look for. I look for, and even when I'm studying the Battle of Franklin, you know, when Eric told me I have to, you have to go and you have to do battlefield tours. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh, you were not excited about <laughs> I was that. not excited at all because there's regiments and not, and, 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 and ranks. I still don't know their regiments and ranks, all of them. I mean, I'm getting better, but I remember human human stories. So I went out into every regiment that I knew I had to remember, and I plucked out soldiers. And so I can tell you Valentine Clump. <laughs> Valentine Clump was in the 50th Ohio. I picked is, his name out randomly and told you to, or you were asking me to pick a name yeah. out randomly, and I picked out Valentine Clump yeah. because his name was hilarious. Yeah, and it wasn't an easy name to research, Brad. <laughs> Thanks about that. Um there were, there were like three or four Valentine clumps from the same area. That's crazy. Yeah. 
I know the personal stories. I know the human perspective. I know what they did when they got home. And I know how many kids they had and what they experienced, what, where they were on the battlefield and how that experience must have affected them. I don't remember how much artillery was fired. Well, and that's important because I think a lot of people are turned off by history because it can be all about memorizing facts and figures and statistics. But having your perspective come in and talk about, well, who was this person? Like what, what made them tick? Like making people that lived 150 years ago into real human beings who made real decisions uh, makes it so much more relatable for a lot of people. So I think that's really important. Our next thing is we're talking, you're going to talk about, why don't you tell us who you're going to talk about? Josie Wells. And Josie Wells stumbled into my life about March or April of this year. And I saw her from across the room. And I was at Macklemore House. <laughs> you it's, saw her from across really the room? It really is. It sounds like such a silly thing. But I saw her from across the room. And my friend Billy and I were sitting there at Macklemore House. Which is another, another um, historic, another historic site. Which is that Macklemore House tells the story from slavery to freedom. So it's a different story than we tell here at the Battle of Franklin Trust. So it's a great place to be able to share different stories. Anyway, um, Billy and I were sitting there and we weren't getting a lot of traffic. It's it's cold. It's still early in the season. So we were sitting there and they have newspapers hanging up on the wall and they are letters from Santa Claus. It's a black newspaper, the Nashville Globe from 1918, so World War One. but it's Christmas time. And they have all these wonderful letters that children have written into Santa Claus asking for nuts and you know shoes and all of the you know like a bear or a doll it's very very basic things especially when you look at kids lists today right Um, but i was looking over and they also have which doesn't make sense but they have it they have all of these prominent women african-american women that are on the pages as well and billy and i were sitting across the room and i looked over and i'm like why is there one man on that on that paper and you know billy just said oh and i was i got up and i went over and i looked i'm like billy this isn't a man this is a woman her name is josie wells and i looked right below her and it was her eyes that pulled me in because she has the most confident stare she pulls you in with these eyes because she's this african american woman in 1918 she's wearing a suit and she's a doctor and you can see the confidence and the absolute self-worth she must have felt to even get to the level that she was at to be a doctor, right? And so it said right below her name, Dr. Josie Wells. And right below that, it said superintendent of Hubbard Hospital. And mm-hmm. I looked, I'm like, oh my gosh, Billy, I think I think she was the head of the hospital. So really at that point, I just, her eyes drew me in and I thought, I, I want to know more about this woman. So I went home and I started researching. Actually, I didn't go home. I pulled out my computer right there at <laughs> Macklemore House. And Billy and I, um, he sat beside me as I started researching. And Josie just started to develop. She started to come into this frame. And she really, at first it was just basic a couple articles popped up. Josie Wells, superintendent of Hubbard Hospital, raising money for the hospital, little things like that. But the thing that struck me the most is when I looked at her age. She was my age, 44 years mm-hmm. old. In 1921, when she died, she was almost exactly my age at the point when I located her or mm-hmm. when I came across her, I should say. And I don't know, for some reason that was important. Was some of the newspapers that talked about her reference her as the first female doctor in Tennessee, or was that... Well, they'll say first female doctor, um, first graduate of Meharry mm-hmm. Medical, and 
And that was one of the things that when I first started researching her, I'm like, oh my God, she's the first doctor. And it was one of the things that really made me excited. But then you start researching more and you start realizing that people will just, you know, they'll exaggerate, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I, you know, I'm fond of. However, you know, you can't do that when you're researching someone and you're creating this story for or finding their story, not creating a story. You're finding their story. So Josie was one of the first female graduates of Meharry Medical. And she was, at the time when she graduated, between like 1904 and 1910, she was the only female practicing doctor in Nashville. So she was running her own clinic at that point, and she ran a clinic for only women and children. If you were a man, you weren't even allowed to come to her clinic. (laughs) Um, She did treat also students at Fisk University at Meharry. Um, she She was the doctor on staff at Walden University. She... Worked at Hubbard Hospital as well. She was the superintendent, so she obviously worked there as well. And I'm sure she treated many men. Um, But in her clinic that she ran two days a week from Napier Court in um, Nashville, she only treated women and children. And she gave medical care for free. And she didn't discriminate by race, but she wouldn't treat men. Why don't we, before we get into too many of Josie's accomplishments, why don't we start at her beginning, like where her story starts? Her story starts, and in my opinion, she was born in 1876. There are uh, conflicting dates for her birth, um, depending on when you look, the 1900 census, all of these places. But she was born in 1876 on November 28th in um, Holly Springs, Mississippi. She was the daughter of slaves, and she was one of their youngest children. And her father actually was, he he was a man by the name of Barry English, and he was born in Kentucky, ended up in Mississippi as a slave at some point. And then after freedom, he ended up back in Sumner County, Tennessee, which is right here above Nashville. So he was in Gallatin. He had a wife and a whole slew of children. And then after his first wife died, he ended up going back to Holly Springs, Mississippi. Um, He married Josie's mother, who already had children as well. And then they had th- at least at least three children of their own. So this is right before the overwhelming yellow fever epidemic that wiped out a portion of the population in Holly Springs. You would see articles in Minnesota newspapers talking about the deaths in Holly Springs, Mississippi, because it was so overwhelming what was going on in Memphis and, and Holly Springs. So at first they blocked out. They said nobody can come into Holly Springs, but then they opened up the border. So people came in. It's actually the epidemic where Ida B. Wells' parents died. She was 16 years old. She was actually um, not home when her parents died, but both of her parents and her youngest sibling, Ida B. Wells, died from this yellow fever epidemic. And it's Holly Springs was not a huge town. I'm sure Josie and her parents knew Ida B. Wells. And it's interesting because Josie ends up marrying a George Wells, and Ida B. had a brother named George Wells, and they all would have been about the same age. But I absolutely cannot prove that they have any relationship whatsoever. For our listeners' mm-hmm. sake, can you just describe who Ida B. Wells is? Ida B. Wells is most famous because she was a suffragist. She traveled the country speaking um, for women's rights, but she was also speaking for black rights, African-American rights. She was protesting against the lynchings in the South, and she was writing about it because a lot of white newspapers were not talking about the lynchings that were going on. They were only talking about things that black people did wrong. They're not talking about the things that were happening to that population of individuals. So Ida B. Wells has this newspaper, and what she puts in the newspaper are the things that, you know, she wants to stop, like lynchings. So Josie's story 
kind of mirrors and is it seems to be connected in multiple ways to there Ida B. Wells' story. So, there are so many ways that I think that their stories, just these two African-American women born in the same city, educated, growing up, strong, powerful, determined, and they have that same look in their eyes, that I'm going to take on the world determination look. So they have so many similarities, and I would love to find a connection mm-hmm. other than they were, you know, they're strong, they're born in the same city, and they have the same last name. Right. It <laughs> seems would, like they must have known each other. They must yeah. have, and I can find nothing to prove that, though. Um, but hopefully eventually, because genealogy isn't something that stops. I mean, what I have today, I might find something amazing mm-hmm. tomorrow. We could have a story here at the Battle of Franklin mm-hmm. Trust that we think is over and we know everything. And then all of a sudden something pops up and we know a ton more. So she she grows up. She w- What happens next? So she she's born to parents who were former she slaves. She went to college mm-hmm. um, in Holly Springs. Actually, Ida B. Wells' dad was on the original board for Rust University, which is down in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Josie went to a nurse's technical institute down there, which I'm fairly certain was connected to this black college, Rust College down there. But she graduated from there. Um, She got married to a professor named George Wells. The only thing that calls him a professor is Josie's obituary. So we're going to go with that. We're going to say he's a professor. And he ended up dying soon after. But she'd already had a baby Mm -hmm. by this point. She actually had a baby on her 20th birthday. Wow. So she gave birth to her daughter, Alma, on November 28th, um, 1896. And what happens is she's a nurse. So she moves out to Texas. She works in um, Dr. Greenstarn's. Josie does. Yes. Josie and Alma move out to Texas. And they live out there for a few years. And she So she's 20 years old. She's a widow, single mother yeah. at this point. In a nurse. And she's going to Texas on her own. I mean, can you imagine the bravery that that would have taken? I mean, I moved to Nashville when I was 39 by myself with my child. And I thought I was the bravest person in the world. <laughs> and she's, you know, a black woman in the South. Moving throughout the South, which isn't an easy thing. No. And, you know, when you have such, it's a different world, right? So such separation for them. So she goes out to Texas and she works at this hospital and she is the head of nurses there. She is helping to teach out there. So Did she know happens, of a job there or was she just striking it I do it not know. I, I, I have contacted San Antonio um, I've contacted. They don't have a lot about even Dr. Starnes there. I, I probably know more about Dr. Starnes now than the librarian that I called, just because mm-hmm. I want to know about all the people that surrounded Josie. Because when you, most people, when they study family history, you have a lot of people, they want to know how far back they can get, right? Mm-hmm. But what you need to do is you need to study one generation or study one person and study everybody around them. Because you learn who that person is by the people, the individuals that were a part of their lives. So I started researching Dr. Starnes and her friend Nettie Napier and um, just these individuals that I found in the newspaper with her. Because you do learn about those people. So Dr. Starnes was prominent. He was studying tuberculosis, which was rampant within African-American communities. And they didn't have the money and the resources, um, the medications to take care of it. So, and... African-Americans were living in squalor a lot of times. So he shows pictures of that and just how entire families would be debilitated by this mm-hmm. disease. So that's what he was, that's what he's prominently known for, Dr. Starnes. But he had a hospital, just pretty much probably like the same thing Josie opened here in Nashville, right? You know, you, you have a hospital where you're trying to give equal, you're trying to give 
care to African Americans that's equal to what the whites are getting in the other hospitals because blacks weren't getting equal care in the white hospitals. Mm -hmm. So you want to provide care and you want to provide a chance for sick African-American individuals. So she's almost like tutoring with him in Texas, like learning yeah. those same skills. I would say it's almost like an internship. Okay. And that's what she's doing. She's out there. But then in 1900, she very briefly moves back to Holly Springs, Mississippi. And she's how she old at that point? She is... 23? Yeah. 23, 20. Yeah, yeah. About 23 years old. That She's almost 24. Um, and she's living right next door to her mother. And then by October of that year, she is here in Nashville and she is attending Meharry Medical School. So she graduated in 1904, one of the first female graduates. And she was popular and well-liked. Everybody said she had an easy manner, a determined voice, and she made people comfortable with her medical knowledge. And just think about how incredible this is. And I, I cannot repeat enough. She was a black woman in the South in the turn of the century. Single mother. Single mother. Widow. Right? And she went to, yeah, she she put herself through medical school as a single black mother in the South in 19, you know, the turn of the century, 1900 to 1904. That alone, I mean, look at what we've done in our lives. And you think that alone, I can't even imagine what that took. It's a lot of courage, but it's also a lot of recognizing that you're worth it. Like you, you are able like to demand, like I'm, I'm, I deserve this. I deserve this recognition. I'm going to earn it. I'm going to work hard for it. Exactly. And she was the child of slaves. And for me, when I think about the opportunities that she got, they couldn't even have anticipated something like that for them, for themselves or their children. Think about being a slave and you've been a slave and your parents and your grandparents and all of a sudden you're free and thank goodness her her father was a skilled laborer right so he came he met freedom with a skill which a lot of slaves didn't they were laborers so they they were agriculture knowledge based so he was a carpenter and he was obviously a good carpenter because he had enough money to send his daughter to college and so even being skilled even I mean, he must have had drive as well. I think both her parents must have. But they couldn't have imagined this life for their daughter. I mean, there's no way. And Josie's mother lived with her here in Nashville at the end of her life. She moved Oh, her parents were alive through some well, of Well, her this. father wasn't, but her mother was. Oh. Her mother didn't die until 1915. To have been a slave, old enough to have children during slavery, and you come out of this and you're able to send your children to college... And have a daughter that's a doctor. I just think that's incredible. Well, yeah. And imagine just the yeah. thing, the things in American history that she would have witnessed throughout her life. Mm-hmm. Talking about her mom now, like the war, Reconstruction, <laughs> the 13th, 14th, 15th, 15th Amendment. So I couldn't imagine seeing your child flourish like that. That would be, I'm sure that was an incredible yeah. feeling. Move to new states, new cities. Pierce the deal. Imagine this woman, Elizabeth, who lives through... All of that that you just said, mm-hmm. right? She almost makes it to women's, the right mm-hmm. to vote, almost makes it to that time period where she would have been able to go from being a slave to being mm-hmm. able to vote. Because her mm-hmm. mom dies in 1915. 1915. So barely missed it, yeah. right? And Josie barely sees it. And that is where we're going to pause Josie's story with Christy. Tune in two weeks to part two, where we continue on with Josie's story and talk about her impact on the Nashville community. If you want to stay 
up to date about what we're doing as 10 and 20, please follow us on Instagram. It's just 10 and 20 podcast, T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast on Instagram. We're going to post some pictures of Josie there. If you want to let us know a topic that you think that Sarah and I should cover, please send us an email at podcast at boft.org. That's podcast, all one word, at B-O-F-T dot org. If you want to support us uh, financially and buy something for yourself that is pretty neat, if you go to our online store, which is store.boft.org, you can purchase one of our 10 and 20 t-shirts. And finally, if you enjoy this content, the best way to get it regularly downloaded to your phone is to subscribe via whatever podcast app is easiest. Most people do the Apple podcast app. If that's what you do, we'd love it if you subscribe and if you could leave us a review on iTunes, that helps us in the rankings and just to get feedback from our listeners. So thank you so much for listening.